believe. In view of them all, in the presence, Jesus did all these things, and they still did not believe. Doesn't this beg the question this morning? Why didn't they believe? John knows this is a question that you want to ask. And I would argue to you that this is one of the most appealing and convincing aspects of the gospel, that these writers do not dodge your problems. I mean, if they were seeking to embellish the truth and to maybe leave out some things and just really present a strong case, you would expect them to gloss over some difficult parts, sweep them underneath the carpet, and just hope that you didn't notice. But in fact, the compelling reality of the truthfulness of these gospels is that they never do that. In fact, they raise problems before you do, expecting you to have those questions. And this week is no exception. John raises a problem, a problem that must be tackled. It is the problem of unbelief. John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's a problem. It's a problem for John's case. Remember, John is written as a trial, as a lawsuit in a trial. This kind of has a courtroom feel to it. And his case that he's very honest with you about is to persuade you in John 20, 31, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what he wants you to do. And he has presented to you character witnesses to establish the credibility of Jesus and his person. He's given you evidential witness of all of his miracles to show that he has the character, he has the power. And then he gives you documentary evidence of all of these Old Testament texts, the very things that these people would have accepted as the word of God. This is their source. And he piles all that up so that you, the jury, would be persuaded to believe what Jesus is claiming, that this Jesus is that God. The case, I mean, is almost closed. It is so clear, except for this one problem. Here's the problem. The unbelief of the religious experts. John knows you're thinking this. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why have so many of the Jewish religious experts not believed in him? That's a big problem. If these experts don't get it, should we be worried? What am I missing as a reader today if them then, back then, who are Jews and religious experts don't believe? Hey, John, you can't expect me to buy your product if you can't sell it in your own neighborhood, do you? And so before John says anything else about Jesus and what he's done and what he's going to teach, let's stop here for a moment and see why this is the case. So members of the jury, you need to know why people don't believe in Jesus despite all they saw. John's going to give us reasons for unbelief. Here's the outline. Reasons they would not believe, point one. Reasons they could not believe, point two. Reasons you should believe, point three, right? To ultimately present to you this morning all for this point. Faith family, do not be phased by unbelief, right? Unbelief does not defeat God's purposes. It actually achieves them. 
For Jesus came to be rejected by these people so that you could be accepted. Do not be phased by unbelief, right? Unbelief does not defeat God's purpose. It actually achieves it. For Jesus came to be rejected so that we, Gentiles, could be accepted. Let's pick it up in verse 38. We're going to start with reasons they would not believe. And John gives us two reasons they would not believe. And to prove that, he turns us back to the prophet Isaiah. So turn back with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. If you are using a pew Bible, that red one, it's page 613. If you're new to using a Bible, the large numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses, you will be most helped if you leave that Bible open through the whole sermon. It'll help you see that it's not my ideas, but just God's Word. Pray that it will encourage you. So as you're turning to Isaiah 53, we have John, a New Testament writer, quoting the Old Testament. And when he does that, he's kind of quoting the whole context of Isaiah 53. He would have expected his readers, his original audience, to have the whole picture of Isaiah 53 in mind. And so Isaiah 53 is going to give us two reasons why these people saw the miracles and still chose not to believe. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? That deals with the words. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That pertains to his works. And the question before us has an implied answer. No one. Why would they not believe? Reason number one, the superficiality of the world. Reason number one, the superficiality of the world. Look at verses 2 through 3 of John 53. They despise and reject Jesus because he is not the sort of Christ they want him to be. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why do people not believe? It's not because God's been silent. It's not because his works have been absent. People are unwilling to believe in Jesus because he didn't meet the world's superficial standards, right? He didn't look like a Messiah that they wanted. He didn't act like the Messiah that they wanted. It was really all about the externals, right? It was about his image. We see these questions all the way through the gospel. We know from the gospel from the very beginning there was no room for him at the end. Already outcast there. Well, why was that? Well, because his pedigree was all wrong. This is Mary and Joseph. Oh, wait, is it really Joseph's boy? We can't know for sure. This is Mary and Joseph's boy. Hmm, yeah. His uh, location was wrong. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, that's not where the Messiah is from. And his occupation was wrong. This is the carpenter? Too common, too ordinary. Too lowly. He violates the world's standards. They loved the praise from men. The pedigree that you had. The occupation that you have. Where you live. Has it really changed? You live in Loudoun? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and it just goes on, okay? But we want the celebrity. We still want what's popular. All the polish on the outside. And what is the definition of a celebrity? 
I think it, there it is today, is that someone who has it all that looks great on the outside and is actually falling apart on the inside. And when the fact that we love them just because they look great on the outside. And we know that God does not look on the outside but on man's hearts. And so these religious leaders could not kind of penetrate the veil of his ordinariness. Not only was his birth inconsequential, continuing in Isaiah 53, his death was inglorious. The second reason for unbelief from Isaiah 53 is the substitutionary nature of his work, right? They did not believe because of the superficial standards of the world, but they also didn't believe because of the substitutionary nature of his work. Picking it back up again in Isaiah 53, verse 4. We're going to read through verse 6. Notice the word our, which means in our place, he's substituting himself for us. Surely he has been, uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is it that no one believes the message? Faith family, don't be phased by unbelief. There is nothing wrong with the man of Jesus Christ. There is nothing wrong with the message of the gospel. Do not be phased by unbelief. It has to do with proud hearts. Why people reject him? They are too proud to accept the need of rescue. It's beneath their dignity. The idea that we would have to admit our failure to cast ourselves on the mercy of God, to plead with him to remove the burden of sin that we can't deal with, and for him to rescue us. His way is altogether too much for proud people to believe. If you've ever witnessed to a friend, you know this is a sort of Christ that people don't want, right? A Christ that goes to a cross tells you that you're a sinner. He had to go to a cross because of me. And a Christ that goes to a cross makes demands of the same for your life and mine, that if you choose to follow him, you must actually not just believe in this cross, but glory in it, treasure in it, pick it up, carry it, follow him. And people don't want that sort of Christ that makes demands on their life of self-sacrifice. People want the sort of Christ that says he loves you as you are, gives you your best life now and maybe even better later. So like all the Jews had all of this evidence that they could possibly need, these people here still do not believe. But they probably would have believed if God would appeal to our pride, right? That would have been a different story. We wouldn't have to admit that we were wrong. We could just talk about how we're doing better. We'd be able to have rescue on our own terms when we wanted it in our way. And that's precisely the self-sufficiency that God hates. So this morning, we have a warning before us, all to have, uh, a warning to all who have heard the message of the gospel explained to them by somebody who loves you. You need to know that your unbelief is a matter of your will. It's a proud refusal to accept God's rescue on his terms. It's kind of like an arrogant holding out that I'm not going to be rescued that way. It doesn't flatter my ego. Think about the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. You guys know him? He was a king who got leprosy, okay? And a great general in Syria, he got leprosy. 
and he hears that the prophet Elijah could have healed him. And so he goes to him with a bucket load of money. He brings all of his weapons, all of his soldiers with him, and he figures that he's going to go there and that uh, Elijah's going to meet him and he's going to be asked to do this hard thing. And here's what happens. As he's going that way, the servants of Elijah come out to him and tell him, if you want to be healed, go bathe in the Jordan, the dirty river. And he gets mad, and he refuses, and he turns to go back home. And literally, this is what his servants say to him, right? I mean, he's so furious, he's so mad, his servants come and say, my father, if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? I mean, that's what he was expecting. Slay a monster, rescue the captives, right? I mean, bring the broomstick back from the wicked whisk of the West. I mean, do something. But he was offended because he said, go wash in the ordinary, dirty Jordan. Because that's too easy. Anyone can do that. It's too ordinary. He was offended because of his pride. It's a warning to you this morning. Is your pride getting in the way of you receiving God's rescue? And a word about your rescue, because it's not coming to you the way that you want. But it also should be an encouragement for you if you're here as a Christian. I know as a Christian it is really easy to be phased by the unbelief of your friends and family and co-workers around you. I think about the new Christians that are here this year, the people that we've baptized this year. And you're excited about your newfound faith. God's opened your eyes. You believe. You've turned. You've trusted in him. And now you want to go out there and you want to share that with your friends and your family. And you might not do it perfectly. There is no perfect way, by the way, okay? But you're faithful in sharing that. And and they hear you. And you're excited and you want to convince them. They just look at you and they yawn. Or even worse, they reject you. They ridicule you. They start leaving you out. And it would be really easy to say, did I get something wrong with this message? Do I actually, I mean, if all these people that I respect don't get it, my parents, my boss, my scout leader, my coaches, my university professors, my spouse, did I get the message wrong? And John is saying here, do not be phased by unbelief. Because 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah told us that this was going to happen. We must pray instead for God to humble our friends and our family and our co-workers. Because those that are unwilling to believe become progressively those unable to believe. Now we're at a part of the sermon now, this is point two, reasons they could not believe, and it's found in John 12, 39. So go ahead and flip back to John 12, 39. I just want to be honest with you, there are passages of scripture that it feels like as a pastor that you've jumped on this wild Mustang with no saddle, no horse lessons, and you are just hanging on and it is taking you because that's what it says. It's just hard to wrap your arms around. And if you have questions, be glad to meet with you after the service to talk to you about how these things are so and to try to uh, answer your questions. I think God stands up to them. And um, if not, come to meeting tonight with Pastor Pat if you identify with him better and ask him these questions as well. He'd love to, again, attempt to answer them as best as we can or point to someone who can. John 12, 39, look at those that would not believe. Now they are said to be those that could not believe. John 12, 39, therefore they could not believe. Members of the jury, do not be phased by unbelief. 
Because not only was unbelief predicted by Isaiah the prophet, but it is promised by God. To provide documentary evidence again, John takes us back to Isaiah, this time to Isaiah 6. We find this quote here from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. And we actually read it as our call to worship, right? This, he, Isaiah is given uh, a vision to see the glory of God. And then Isaiah is given a job to do. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And what is the job he's given to do? Well, you're going to preach, Isaiah. You're going to preach to a people. But these people have uh, heard and have seen evidence after evidence after evidence. And you're going to preach. And you're going to preach them all the way into exile. Because after seeing all this evidence and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it, it's just going to harden their hearts even more. And so these people that were unwilling to believe now become people unable to believe. Look at 40 and 41. This is what God tells Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Members of the jury, in the exact same way, when we see the experts of Jesus' day reject him, we don't need to worry. These religious experts come from a long line of bad critics. The Jews of the Old Testament, they would have hated war and peace. They would have rejected Citizen Kane as the best movie. I mean, these people are constantly wrong in what they love and what they hate. There's nothing wrong with this man or this message. These proud hearts that were unwilling to believe eventually become unable to believe. They saw sign after sign after sign again and again and again, and they would not believe in him. And here's the tragic consequence. Now, they could not believe. This is God's judgment, right, on their own hardening. God is not hardening morally neutral people. Can I say that again? God is not hardening morally neutral people. He is hardening proud, rebellious people who have had chance after chance after chance and have become more calloused and calloused and calloused. Consider your heart like water. You know, when water is beginning to freeze, it can't hold any weight. Even a penny, if you were to drop it on top of the water that is beginning to freeze, it would what? Sink right to the bottom. But the colder it gets, that water begins to crust over. And it can begin to withstand some weight. It can get so frozen and so thick, like people that go ice skating around Bow. They see that the lake is uh, getting thicker, and they throw a kid out there to see, will he sink? And he doesn't, so they say, let's, let's all go out there and then skate, right? That's what we do. And it can withhold a child to the point that I moved to New England, and I heard that when a Pasaki freezes over and people drive their cars out there, and I was like, the whole lake of when a Pasaki freezes, you can take a hammer, and you can hammer, you can take a sledgehammer, and it will not crack. Well, if you keep rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ, eventually his words and the works before you will have as much effect on your heart as a pebble on a frozen lake. Friends, being at a gospel preaching church is a double-edged sword. 
On one side, you have the great privilege of hearing truths from God's Word, explained verse by verse, so you just know what God expects of you, and you get to hear this message of rescue. It's a great privilege to be raised in a gospel-preaching church. But there is a great danger here, and it is this danger, the danger of being raised in this church, hearing it your whole life, knowing intellectually the right things, what was authentic for your parents that got saved in their 20s and in their 30s. Now because you were raised in it, you have now had formalism or nominalism. You just go through the motions, but your heart is far from him. Because we also have this promise from Isaiah, that God's word does not return void which means that the same sun that melts butter can also harden clay into bricks. God's Word is doing something this morning. It is either melting your heart in worship to Him, or it is hardening you again to want to resist it. Every time we reject the message, we risk being blinded or hardened. So non-Christian, beware today that the longer you wait, the greater risk you take. The psalmist says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because sooner or later, those that would not believe can become those that could not believe. That's hard to hear, isn't it, faith family? And you might expect that if you really believe that, if you really have that theology of unbelief, if Jesus really wants that taught in churches, you would expect that Jesus would kind of pull back. He's getting rejected. And so that he would just pull back, roll up the sidewalks, pull up the drawbridge, not go outside, not offer life to anyone around him. But instead we find just the opposite. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Wow. I think about uh, the opportunities I've had to be in a different country. And uh, being an American, we kind of only know English well. I might know a little bit of Spanish, you know, but that's not going to get me too far. I certainly don't know any French. And we went to Canada. I really just thought since we were so close to Canada... They'd speak English. <laughs> They're pretty proud to speak French. They, they like their country. They like their language. And that was, that was kind of a surprise to Laura and the kids and I as we went to Montreal. And uh, so I do what most Americans do in a foreign country. You speak louder and slower in English. And you kind of just expect people to hear you and, and understand you. And I kind of feel like that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, they have seen all these signs. They have heard them over and over again. And we get the end of John 12, and Jesus cries out. I mean, slower and louder, just hoping that anyone who had previously rejected him, this religious establishment, or the people in verse 42 who fear man and are unwilling to confess him, if you are a hard, resistant or if you want to be a private Christian, both of these, he cries out and says, you need to know who I am. I want you to understand this. And it's his last, final, public invitation so that you today have no excuse. Faith family, do not be phased. Don't let the unbelief of these prior generations give you an excuse not to believe today because Jesus turns right before he goes to the cross. This is the last time he actually has any public teaching 
with the crowd around him, the last chance for them to understand who he is, Jesus cries out so that we will not miss out. And this is what he cries out. There is nothing more important for you to know to believe in him. Because how you react to Jesus is actually how you react to God the Father. Look at verse 44. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Why is it important to believe in this Jesus? Because this Jesus is that God. And how you treat this Jesus is how you treat that God. When you look at him, you see the Father. Verse 45, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. So how you respond is a matter of light and darkness. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Don't you just hate walking around in darkness, stubbing your toe, getting hurt, tripping over things? That's what life is like without the light of Christ. We bump into things. We try to do things that we weren't made for. We experience the consequences and hurt of that. Being in the dark is hopeless. But coming to Jesus is like having the lights turned on. No more stumbling in the dark, but it's also an eternal matter. Look at 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Right? Failing to turn to Jesus now leaves you in the dark. Not only now, but for eternity. And Jesus came to rescue you from that. But if you reject that rescue... Right? You condemn yourself, for there's no other rescue that is provided. He came to rescue you and me, and he tells you how you can be rescued. You receive his word. If you reject that word, well, that word will stand against you, because Jesus speaks God's words. Look at verses 48 and 49. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, uh, me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Here's a question for us to close. Would we want to be so foolish to reject and not listen to that word from Jesus and to believe the religious experts that rejected him. Don't be phased by unbelief. Rather realize that unbelief does not defeat God's plans, but actually achieved his plans. Jesus was rejected. He came to be rejected. He was crucified for our sins. That had to happen. And so his rejection was ultimately so that we could be accepted by God. And faith family, as you begin to see what Christ did for you, that he was rejected and reviled for you, then now as you face this world and you share those truths, then you can say, oh, I'm rejected, I'm ridiculed, I'm ostracized. Well, he faced the ultimate rejection for me so I could be accepted. And now you say, I can, I can take this minor snubbing, this ostracism, this being left out. Faith family, I want to encourage this morning to glory in the cross. This man's death is your only hope for life. Right? Glory in the cross because it is the heart of our discipleship. There's no other way to live as a Christian than to take up your cross and follow him. And you follow him outside the camp to where he was crucified, which means, too, you will have to go outside the world. You will not find your acceptance here. Of course, these are unpopular truths. So don't be phased by unbelief. The cross has always divided the cross divides. Will you glory in the cross? 
Will you continue to persevere even if the majority of the world around us rejects this news? Don't be phased by unbelief. Let's have a moment of silence. Think about how you need to endure, how you need to proclaim, where your heart might be loving the praise of man that's making you want to be silent with friends and family at work, and where you need to live for the glory of God. And then we'll stand and sing our closing two songs.